The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we give you thanks for gathering us here today to sit before you as you speak and teach. Spirit of God, we look to you for that now. We ask you to open this word. We ask you to, to minister to our hearts. Father, will you commission him to do just that now? Father, by your spirit, lift up the sun in our eyes here as we see him in this passage and learn more about him Father, Son, and Spirit, all together, will you teach us, build your church, mature us, and do that for our good and for your glory. That's what we ask. Thank you. Amen. Can God be trusted? Of course, the correct answer is yes. And everybody would answer that. Everybody here probably knows the answer to that. You would probably readily give it if asked in a situation like this one here in a sermon or in a life training class or on some sort of written test. And you might be able to give a few Bible verses to even back that up. That's good. It is good to know that. And of course, the question, can God be trusted, strikes us very differently when considered amidst the messiness of life. So not in these types of settings, not comfortably seated in a sermon or in a life training class or asked on a written test, asked amidst some difficulty, some sort of trial or amidst some pain when you actually are looking at something challenging and you really need God to come through and deliver something or another and he hasn't yet and you don't see where it might come from, you don't see how he would, you don't see even when he might. It just doesn't seem that he's there. Oh, so formally, I know the answer. Yes, God can be trusted, but practically, experientially, I wonder. We've all been there as our hearts grow anxious. And our minds, at least, if not our hands, our minds at least get busy scrambling, trying to figure out what can I do, 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 to gather in whatever it is that I need to fix the problem that has been left to me, evidently. And God's somewhere else. That's a human problem. Everybody faces that, Christians too. Even though we might know something, we face that too. And the good news though for the Christian is that because of what we're gonna see in our passage today in Matthew 4, God is in fact faithfully for us and you can trust him. And I mean can in two different ways. Can in that it is reasonable to trust him. He's trustworthy. And can as in it is possible to trust him, you are able. He is trustworthy and you are able to trust him. Even amidst all the hardships around, they're going to argue otherwise. The things you can see with your eyes, well, don't, don't look to the things you can see. Look to the things that are unseen. And in particular this morning, we're going to talk about Christ the faithful, true Son of God who trusted his Father and was delivered. 
And so therefore, that's true for you too. You have a faithful, trustworthy Father and you will be delivered. You can trust him. That's what we're going to be considering today in Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. Let me read the passage, and then I'll pass back through it to clarify a couple of details before making two overarching observations. And before I read it, though, as, as I read it, quite obviously, this is a very familiar passage. And so a lot's been done with this, and you've probably encountered it in some way or another, heard something from it. It's possible, though, that I'm going to have to ask you to kind of like hold off what you think you know. Because often this immediately is immediately, immediately used as some sort of a guide as to how to deal with temptation. And it's not really that. There is indeed for sure help for us when facing temptation amidst trials. For sure, we're going to get there. But the bulk of it, as we're going to see, the bulk of our time this morning is it's going to be about Jesus. Because it's, it's about him. <laughs> so let me, uh, let me read Matthew 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for where it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Last week in chapter 3, we encountered God in audible voice saying over Jesus, this is my beloved son, with him I am well pleased. And the Spirit of God, remember, as a bird came and came to rest on Jesus, alighted on him, pointing out Jesus, this one, Jesus, God's son. That was the end of chapter 3. And as we talked about last week, you feel that, you read that, and you kind of feel like this is a significant event. This should be some sort of almost a coronation event or a rallying event or a, a launch of something. Jesus comes up out of the water dripping wet and the voice from heaven and the spirit alighting on him. He should probably start gathering people and begin a campaign, maybe a political campaign, maybe even a military campaign to start cleaning the place out. And in fact, then, our verse one is very unexpected. Because that's what happens. He comes out of the water, the voice, and the bird, and then 
He walks off from there out in the middle of nowhere. Jesus is led by the Spirit of God, not to Jerusalem or anywhere else, but into the wilderness by himself for a reason. To be tempted by the devil. Very deliberately, there is purpose there. Led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. That word tempted could also be translated as tried, tested, evaluated. It all depends on the context, who's doing what. So what we have here, obviously, is Satan is going to tempt him and try to lead him into sin. But all of this has been set up by God as a time of testing, of proving something, showing something, as Satan comes at Jesus. It's hard to say exactly how Satan was present there. There aren't a lot of details. Probably... Satan in some way took on some sort of bodily form and was present because of how Jesus talks to him and then verse 10 says, be gone, Satan, in verse 11, the devil left him. Seems like he physically is here and then physically departs. Seems like he's physically manifesting himself in some way. The temptations, though, are still a little more difficult to understand. Probably offered to Jesus in some sort of a vision. Particularly the last two would be hard, actually impossible, to physically carry out. To leave from the wilderness, to walk all the way to Jerusalem and climb up on top of the building, that would be pretty hard to do, pretty far-fetched. But even more so, there is no such mountain anywhere on which the two of them could stand and see the entire earth and all of its kingdoms. So this is probably something in the form of a vision here. There are three temptations. The first two each begin with, with the fact just established by God's voice from heaven. If you are the Son of God. And that if is really more like a since. Since you are the Son. The temptation is not about whether or not he's the Son. It's what that should mean. What it should be to be the Son. What kind of life Jesus should be experiencing. How he should act. Since you are the Son. The temptations come in different ways in different contexts, but they're all really kind of about the same thing. They're all trying to, to lure Jesus away from trusting in God. So how's he going to respond? And that takes us to our first observation, which, as I said, is the main one, the longer one of the two. So here it is. Jesus shows he is the faithful son of who always trusts God, his Father. Jesus shows that he is the faithful son who always trusts God, his Father. And saying Jesus shows, I could have said proves or establishes or reveals. What I'm getting at there is the intentionality of this. God has made an appointment for Jesus. God has set up a, a one-on-one appointment or battle if you will, between Jesus and Satan to show something. Not because God is unsure of it. God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit are all intimately involved in this. God knows for sure who Jesus is, but we often don't. We're often a little bit unclear on that. And so God's going to reveal something, make something plain about him. What's he trying to show? 
Well, some more of what we've already seen often in Matthew, but he's going to take that and move it in a slightly deeper spot, move it to a slightly deeper spot. Several times in Matthew so far, we've seen this idea of son of God. It started even before Matthew, back in, back in Samuel with the covenant made with David, but we've seen son of God a lot over the, the number of weeks we've been looking at Matthew. This one who is uniquely owned by, uniquely connected to God. Sometimes it's all the people of God. Remember chapter 2, where we saw Hosea talking about, out of Egypt I called my son, and he means all the people that he brought out of Egypt, all the people of Israel. And other times it's various kings, the sons of David, that one by one God put them on the throne and made them his sons. So we've seen it, it's, it's in all different ways in the Old Testament, but it's always been left empty, a little, bit, a little bit of a hole there in some way that needed to be filled yet as failure and sin and weakness and unbelief marked all of those sons. The people as a whole, the individual kings, there was always something missing. And Matthew's point is, and then along comes Jesus. Repeatedly he's been showing that, and then finally last week, in a way crystal clear, a voice from heaven says, this one, my son. And what we have here in chapter 4 is an intentional setup by God to show just how true that is, that Jesus is the son, by setting him up to be tempted by Satan, as Satan attempts to seduce him into sin, just like in another extremely well-known event in Bible history. Verse 2 makes the connection clear. We've already seen, out of Egypt I called my son, people of God. Well, historically, what happened next right after that? In Exodus, after God called his people out of Egypt, what did they do? For 40 years, years, they were led by God into the wilderness, where, as Moses puts it in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, Moses says, the Lord your God led you these 40 years into the wilderness that he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart. He humbled you and let you hunger, and then he fed you with manna. Led by God, 40, not years, in this case it's days and nights, into the wilderness, hungering, testing. This is the fulfillment the completion of the wandering of the people of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. That son, Israel, this son, Jesus. Same situation, completely different result. And that's the point. Verse 3, the tempter came at him and said, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to be loaves of bread. What's that about? Well, hunger, obviously. Jesus is, in, in fact, fully God, but he's also fully man. And 40 days he's been there, and he's physically hungry. Just like Israel in the wilderness was physically hungering without bread. But there's a little more here than just you're hungry, so make some bread. It's, you are the son of God. You should not be hungry. You are the king.
king. You should have a table laid with the best stuff in the land. You, of all people, should be well-fed, not pained by hunger, left hanging here in need while your father is... Where is he, in fact? Here you are hungry. That ain't right. You are the son. So command. You have authority. Command these stones to become bread. That would be right. Whatever is going on right now, this situation that you are in, that's not right. You are the son. Make bread. Fix this. See, the temptation is based in hunger, but it's not just about hunger. It's actually about Godward trust. Trust in God the Father and his will and his timing or distrust and taking of matters into, in this case, Jesus' own very capable hands. And verse 4, the reply reveals Jesus is committed to dependence on God and trust in him. He quotes from Deuteronomy 8. So important to note where this comes from. Because it is not just a verse that we should use to kind of remind ourselves that we should trust the Bible. This is the next verse. I read the verse from Moses in Deuteronomy. This is the very next verse. Jesus knows exactly what's going on here. He knows where he is, and he picks up in the text from there immediately and says, yeah, but... Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from God. It's a statement addressing the question, where do we find life? What rules us? Do our appetites rule us, our felt appetites, and then we should act on them? Or does something else rule us? And even when we can't see how that works out, we trust it. Anybody who has ever trained a dog... I don't know about cats, but anybody who's ever trained a dog knows exactly what this is, and you've done this very thing. You put the food over here, and you tell the dog to sit right here, and then you go about your business, checking your email, getting a glass of water, whatever, just doing your thing as the dog sits right there and the food sits right there. Salivating. Why do you do that? Because it's funny to torture the dog? No. Because you forgot? Because you're aimless, so you don't, don't know why you did that. You just did it because people do it. No, no, no. You got a purpose. You know there is something more important in play here than that dog's hunger being immediately satisfied. Oh, it could be for sure, but there's something more important in play. What's more important that's in play right now? That that dog know that my word is law. that I'm the master. Right? Now, I said it like that because we can get that wrong. We humans can say, I'm the master. My word is law. And people beat their dogs and are mean and cruel to them, right? We can get that wrong, but we got the right idea, basically. And you know it if you've ever trained a dog. You've done that very thing. 
Where we can get it wrong, God never gets it wrong. If God ever puts the food over here and sets us right there, it never has that edge in it because God is God, not a man. God being God says, I know there is something more in play here. Not that you know my word is law, but that you know that I'm the one you have to look to for guidance and truth, not your own appetites. That you realize that my timing is the one you have to respect and respond to because it's right and good. You may feel something immediately. Don't trust yourself. You're not trustworthy. You're finite and you don't know. I do because he's God. We can get things wrong. We can mess that all up. We can train. We can be fools. But God is good and wise. And he knows there's something much more important in play than having appetite immediately satisfied. We need food for sure, but we need God's will and God's way and God's guidance and God's leadership and God's plans and God's purposes and God's grace and God's mercy far more. That's where life comes from, not just in the immediate satisfying of our physical needs as we feel them in the here and the now. Israel was placed in the wilderness to, as Moses said, be tested that God might make them to know that man does not live by bread alone. And Israel said, nope, and failed. And grumbled and complained. It would have been better to have stayed in slavery than to come out under this one's rule. But look at Jesus, the faithful son. who was willing to go 40 or 41, 42 days if the father thinks it best. Because the father knows what is best. Whatever his will is and his ways are, that's where I'm taking my cues. The spirit has led me here, I'm in his hands. I, I know that he holds me, I know that he cares for me. I will trust him and I will not take matters into my own hands. I don't live off what I feel and what I want to live off what he says and who he is. Next. So next, the devil tries a different angle. Throw yourself down from this great height. You're the son of God. And as it is written, want to quote the Bible? Okay, I can quote the Bible. Psalm 91, Jesus says that God will not let the righteous one fall. He will command his angels to, to catch you, to carry you up and protect you. So jump. What, what's that about? This is a little harder to understand because it's not immediately obvious. It seems kind of strange. And it's not staged in the desert, so it doesn't seem to even connect to the particular setting here, let alone Israel in the wilderness. But think for a second. The angels bearing you up lest you strike your foot. What that's getting at is safety and protection. Which Jesus you would be able to experience would be proven to you right now right away, beyond all doubt. You are the son and you should be protected. God's word says so, but look around. It does not quite seem like you are being protected. It seems like you are being abandoned and left to the wolves. 
Every night for days and nights, we've heard the wolves and we've heard the grumbling of your stomach and yeah, great, you're 40, 41, 42, sure, but how do we know that doesn't become like 95, 98, 120, and then you die? How do we know? I mean, maybe, maybe not. How do you know? I know how you'd know. If you jumped off this building, he'd be compelled to come grab you right now and rescue you. Then you'd see it for sure. Jump. Make him prove it. That's the key. Make him prove it. Don't trust what you can't see. Make him show you. Jump. What's that born from? The fear that God has left me. But Jesus responds, yeah, the word says that, and the word also says that the righteous don't put the Lord to the test. That would make him my servant as I make him prove it. I'm his servant. I let him prove what he wants when he wants. The Father's timing is right, and I believe that he upholds me. I believe that he has me in his hands. I believe that he saves. Again, Jesus resisted it. So in verse 8, Satan just lays all the cards on the table. Notice, as Matthew tells it, Luke puts them in a different order, but as Matthew tells it, he's, he's got them connected here so that those two are, are one set, and the third one is a, okay, Gloves off, enough of this if you are the sun stuff and let me try to get you to do something. Here, tell you what. Look at all of this. To you, Jesus. This is so interesting, I think. To you, Jesus, be the kingdoms and the power and the glory forever. I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you right now. It should be yours. I agree. I agree. And I'll be the one who gives it to you. Doesn't seem to be coming to you, does it, here in the wilderness? But I will give it to you, verse 9, if you will fall down and worship me here and now. Pretty simple. Just bow down and all things else will bow down to you. Feel the pull on that. It is hard to say exactly what Satan knew of God's big picture plan of redemption. He must have known some things, but he also must not have known it all. But Jesus knows it all. Do you remember last week's passage where we ended looking at Isaiah? The, the scene at the very end of last week's passage of the Spirit descending on Jesus the anointing of, of Jesus, this is my son, well pleased, that comes out of Isaiah 42, verse 1. We saw this last week. And that begins the, the servant section of Isaiah 40s that leads us to Isaiah 50s, especially Isaiah 52 and then Isaiah 53. It starts in 42, it starts with that event, and it leads us all the way to the suffering servant of 52 and 53. Jesus knew that all the way through. He's the suffering servant, despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, smitten by God, wounded for our transgressions, abandoned to the cross, crucified, dead, and buried. And whether Satan knew all of that, Jesus certainly does. And this temptation is a temptation to skip all of that and just go directly to the end. 
just go around the block and come out on the other side where the kingdoms and the power and the glory are yours. I'll give you that. Let's just skip the middle part, the pain part, the suffering and cross and rejection and sorrow part. Let's skip all that. Without the agony of the intervening years, I will make you king of all of this, as should be the case. All you got to do is give allegiance to me. Call me Father. And I will give you what he's not. So earlier we were talking about hunger and protection. And now we're just down to brass tacks here. I will be the authority over you, but you will rule. What do you say? Pain-free, what do you say? No more sorrows, no, what do you say? Do you want to be exalted? Do you want to be delivered? Do you want to be filled with all kinds of countless delights and honors, yours, and we'll skip all the garbage? That's the temptation. And Jesus' response, allegiance. Jesus in in essence, reaches out and grabs the cross and pulls it to himself. I want all that so I can return it to my father. Not so I can give it to you. I can return it to my father. And I know that comes through the cross. So here, let me take it. God alone is who we worship. Get out of here. And because Satan has to obey him, Satan left. That's what happens to Jesus. All the temptations in the wilderness to take matters into your own hands and satisfy yourself and, in essence, leave God off to the side. Jesus faces the very same things and shows, I'm the son. I'm the faithful one. I always perfectly trust my Father. That's the first point. And it would be fair to just kind of draw a line under that because that's all that's said. But I think we all kind of want to know if that's what, we all kind of want to know, so what? Why does that matter? What, what, do you, what do you do with that? So that's going to be the second point. But it's shorter because this is the focus. These verses are all about Jesus, not just tips to us or showing us something. They're what Jesus faced and how Jesus triumphed over them. He is the faithful son. That does mean something for us, though, and that's the second observation. This is shorter. As this faithful son, then, Jesus is the one to whom and through whom God's blessings flow. As this faithful son, 
Jesus is the one to whom and through whom God's blessings flow. Verse 11 says, The devil left him. Jesus fought this one-on-one battle and defeated this great enemy. Enemy of God and the enemy of God's people. He passed the test. He showed what was in his heart, faith and obedience and dependence and trust. And where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. So he's the new and faithful son called out of Egypt through the wilderness to be God's servant. And behold, verse 11, to him God's blessings begin to flow. Not everything immediately yet. But right after this happened, God is surely trying to show us something because he didn't make Jesus wait 41 or 42 or 43. Right after Satan departs, it says, behold, look at this. Another sign of God's approval. Like the spirit resting on him from heaven, like the voice from heaven, angels came sent by God. Angels, like we mentioned in the second temptation. Now God sends angels. And they minister to him, surely meaning they gave him food and drink. Care for him. Like the first temptation. So God's blessings happily, pleasingly begin to flow to Jesus. But here's the big point for us. This is where it takes a bit of a turn to things that are not in this passage, but which we are fair to kind of explore. So what does this mean for us? The first time I like saw all this, the first time I understood all this and the parallel of Jesus and Israel and, and the, the new and better son that is Jesus, I kind of realized that kind of goes like this. Because if you ask, what does this mean for us, from only this passage, there's nothing here. But when you, when you ask it of the whole rest of the New Testament, there are dozens of things here. Why did Jesus pick 12 disciples? Why 12? Why not, even in the book of Acts, when one betrayed him and they had two qualified candidates, why not 13? Nope, has to be 12. Why 12? Because Israel, Jacob, had 12 tribes. Israel, Jesus, has 12 There's a ton here that goes like, there's a ton in this. We're not going to talk about all of this. We're just going to talk about one thing. The blessings of God begin to flow to Jesus and through him. Big picture, think of it like this. God said, I'm going to bless people. People. People's big. So let's say, Let's drop that down a little bit. Israel. Let's drop that down a little bit. And I mean, not Esau, and I mean, not Ishmael, and I mean, not all the other sons. I mean, Judah. Not all the other Judites. I mean, David. It, It drops down, 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 down until you've got a funnel that is one person wide named Jesus. That's where this is going. To him and through him, all the blessings flow. 
He's the faithful, perfect, sinless son, always obedient to his father. Here and always after until he embraces the cross. And why does he go to the cross? Because none of us do this. He goes to the cross having perfectly fulfilled these requirements to atone for those of us who don't. Who when we are tempted to provide for our own needs, to take matters in our own hands, we do. He atones for the sins of all of us who remain unfaithful to God who don't trust him to provide for our needs, who take matters into our own hands, who constantly stumble and fall into sin. He goes to the cross for that and is able to go to the cross because he is sinless. This is an important passage that sets up the cross and makes Jesus able to forgive us, to give us that great blessing of having our sins atoned for. And more than that, what else happens because of this passage and because of the cross is that Jesus wins for us and for you a father-child relationship that is exactly like his. A father-son relationship that is exactly like his. Now, it's important that I, that I clarify something here. For a second, I'm using the word son to include the daughters also. Because sons, back here in this context, were heirs. Daughters weren't. We can talk son and daughter now, but I'm using son right now, just for a second, to talk about sonship like that of Jesus. Men and women both are included in a father and heir relationship. Jesus' sonship is yours, daughter even. So what happens here as Jesus faces off this temptation is that he, he qualifies himself to be the one who goes to the cross, the, the perfect man to die in the place of other humans. And he then wins for you forgiveness. And he then wins for you a father who pours out on you an inheritance and promises you, you're mine, I own you. I've written you into the will. You're there. I can't scrub you out. Son and daughter both. He's a faithful father to you. Your father in heaven will give you your daily bread. Because he gave it to Jesus, and you are in Jesus. You're in Jesus. He will meet your daily needs. I don't know how, but he loves you with the same love with which he loves the Son, because you're in Jesus. You have a seat at God's table, and his wallet is open to you, and if you don't see how that is, or where that is, or when that is, don't look at the things that are seen. Look, in fact, at this son, faithful and blessed, and in him, like air in a balloon, you go wherever he goes. You go to the table. You go into the inheritance that is promised to just Jesus and given to him, 
and it's yours too. He meets your daily needs. Your Father in heaven will shield you just like he shielded this Jesus because you are in Christ. He will put you under his wings. He will protect you. His eye is on you. He will never let anyone or anything snatch you out of his hand. And that does not mean that we won't be hurt, of course. We live in a fallen world with bodies that can be touched. But it means that he will not surrender you to the evil that hunts you. He will deliver you from the evil one. There is a a prowling and roaring lion that is after you for sure, but the empty tomb proves that he will not leave you to death. You're in Christ. And your Father in heaven will bring to you the inheritance of the kingdom that is promised to you all of its glory and honor and all of its reward The Lord bestows favor and honor on Jesus and on all of you who are in Jesus. That's true of you. Because Jesus is the faithful true son and you're in Christ. So then... Here at the very end, I come around to, so how do you use this to fight temptation? Not just by using Jesus' phrases as almost like magic words, but by setting your mind on the fact that Jesus delivered means that the cross works. And I'm in Christ. And so therefore I have a father just like this one who's faithful to me. When threat arises, and God may let that grow for a time, the discipline that we have to engage in is not just don't do that. Don't give in. Resist. That's true. The discipline that we have to engage in is Jesus fought this fight, won it, and was delivered for me. God is faithful to me, and God's Spirit lives in me now. I can trust him. He's trustworthy, and I'm able. I I read this passage, and I feel like here, as as I'm preaching this here at the end here, I feel like I've done a poor job of communicating something that's sweet here. I read this passage, and I see in it a a colossal battle that happened in private. I wasn't there. But that battle happened so that something that you and I face every day can be fought and won. Trust that. 
trust him. He's a faithful father, father to you. And his spirit lives in you, which means that you are able. So when Satan comes at you and says, he's abandoned you, hasn't he? You better get, your, better get what you need. He won't protect you, will he? Fend for yourself. Skip the pain and fight for your honor. You don't have to say that. Because you are protected and filled and honored. Because you're in Christ. Believe that. Let me pray. Lord, I sit here right now, I'm thankful that, that you are God. Because what I want to ask you to do now, Father, is press into us, your people here now, the peace that's missing. Some peace is missing here. Will you press it in and teach us? Will you draw your people to the spot of settled rest and help them to see in Jesus a great victory that's for them, that secures them in your hand? You are trustworthy. You are good. You are faithful to us. Thank you. So draw near to your people now and minister to them. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.